If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. My name is Mike D on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Distro. You might know me from the Bobby Bones Show where I am the resident movie guy. And this is the podcast I do every single Monday where all I do is talk about movies. This week, I am talking about the evolution of Adam Sandler from comedic to dramatic roles. I recently saw him in Uncut Gems. And that movie really resonated with me in a way I wasn't expecting. And I think it's all because of his performance in the movie. So I kind of just want to go through his roles from the comedic stuff he did in the 90s, the 2000s, and then kind of getting into the waters where he just has really bad reviews movie after movie. So I'll go through all that. Also in my movie list this week, I have my top five most anticipated movies of 2020. Plus, I'll give my review of The Irishman on Netflix, which is a long three and a half hours that I invested in my life. So a lot to talk about on this week's episode. Thanks again for tagging me in your Instagram story, rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing on iHeartRadio. A lot to cover this week, so let's get into it. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast. One man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. So to start out this week's show, I wanted to dedicate an entire segment just to Adam Sandler because I recently watched Uncut Gems. And was really moved by it in a way that I wasn't expecting because I've loved Adam Sandler movies for a very long time. And I grew up in the 90s as a 90s kid and he was the biggest thing in comedy. I just remember going to the video store and renting um, Happy Gilmore, renting Billy Madison and thinking, man, this is like the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I would quote the movies all the time and those movies just kind of stuck with me all throughout my life. And I've loved him from watching him on SNL and kind of seeing him go from being like that beloved funny guy to having this career where he's just kind of viewed as like putting out bad movies, which is which is really kind of crazy 
that he's kind of had this resurgence now with the success of Uncut Gems and really people being able to see his range of an actor because he's it's not the first serious role he's done, but it's the most probably the most acclaimed role that he's taken on in a very long time. So I wanted to go through just his career and kind of see his evolution from being the funny guy and putting out hit blockbuster comedy movies to also being the guy who would put out just flop after flop. But I mean, even with those flops, he was still making a lot of money, but he has just like a a track list of like the worst reviewed movies on Rotten Tomatoes. And then now kind of into the 2010s of also continuing those flops, um, landing a big Netflix deal where he put out some movies. And now he's kind of stepping back into these dramatic roles and having some success where, I mean, he really had a really successful, like quiet, low key 2019, um, now moving into an entirely different decade. So I kind of want to go decade by decade and just look at his work. So starting in the 90s, where he started out doing stand up comedy in New York City, where he was going Um, to college at NYU for acting. And then in addition to that, he would go out and do stand-up, making like $10 a night. You really don't make a lot doing stand-up, and um, especially starting out. So he would go to the club. He had a professor at NYU who would, you know, teach him acting. And his professor told him, like, at one point to quit acting. He's like, man, you have heart, but you really just don't have it to be an actor. And he told him like to go pursue another path. But starting out in the 90s, like he was like broke by the time he got to SNL, which he was discovered um, by doing stand-up. In 1990, he got hired onto SNL and he was 23 years old. And the thing about SNL is you actually don't make a lot of money on that show. It's basically an entry-level TV job. I've seen a bunch of interviews with people starting on SNL. The perception is, oh, you go on that show, you're on TV, you've made it, but really you're not making that much money. You do a show at night that's on once a week. So it's basically an entry level job. He's doing that for five years. He's put out some movies in between then and the year before he got hired on SNL. He did a movie called Going Overboard, which I remember mostly from being in the dollar bin at Walmart. And then he also was in Airheads, a movie in 1994 where they like break into a radio station where he wasn't really the star of that movie. So his movie career hadn't really taken off. But then he got fired from SNL in 19. 1995, and it was all before he received any kind of success at the box office. So he's 28, gets fired from SNL after five years on the show, along with they also fired Chris Farley. So they're both down in the dumps together. He had co-wrote and starred in Billy Madison, which premiered a few months before he left SNL and went on to make a good solid $26 million on that. So after that is where he kind of just has starts having success in the 90s. He puts out Happy Gilmore in 1996, makes $41 million, then The Wedding Singer brings him another 123 million and the water boy in 1998 makes him 190 million and then he closes out the 90s with big daddy making 234 million dollars and at this point you cannot deny that he is a major hollywood star and success so all that from being fired from snl pretty good for him he also in the 90s started his own movie production company called happy madison which just combines his first two movies billy madison and happy gilmore together and this kind of brings him into the 2000s where he starts putting out more you know, still the same kind of comedic movies like Little Nicky, Mr. Deeds, Fifty First Dates. But he also kind of takes a step in that direction of becoming a more dramatic, serious actor, which is really hard for any actor to do who's mainly starred in comedy movies. Like very few people have done it aside from Adam Sandler. Only 
other people I can think of having success are Jim Carrey, Ben Stiller a little bit, but there are very few actors who can be taken seriously in both regard. But he starred in a movie called Punch Drunk Love, which was his first really step in this direction. And I remember kind of being confused seeing him in this role. Because you go into it expecting, you know, silly, wacky Adam Sandler from the 90s. And now he's in this movie playing this guy named Barry who's trying to find love and then gets extorted by a phone sex company. And it's actually a pretty good movie. And you kind of see this different side of Adam Sandler. And you're like, hey, this actually starts to work. The movie received pretty good reviews from critics, although didn't really do so well at the box office. So while it was a step in that good direction of him kind of building towards that, it still wasn't going to be his main thing to just do dramatic roles. Also in the 2000s, he started a movie called Spanglish, which was kind of a mix of comedy and drama and kind of developed this kind of style that he could balance between of like still kind of being the regular Adam Sandler he used to. But then in 2007, he started a movie called Rain Over Me, which is about a man who loses his entire family in the September 11th attack on New York City. And then he runs into his old college roommate and develops a friendship with him and kind of rekindles that. And this is the first movie where you just see full on dramatic Adam Sandler because there's no comic relief whatsoever in this movie. And you get this level of acting and performance from Adam Sandler that you never thought he could really achieve. So at this point, I feel he's established as both a comedic and dramatic actor. I kind of hoped he would take on more of the dramatic roles from here. But then we get into the 2010s, which I kind of dubbed as the decade of bad reviews because he only has like two, maybe three movies that actually have a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's also kind of why he put out that comedy special called 100% Fresh because he was like, if they're not going to give me a good rating, then at least I give it to myself. He then starts putting out movies like Jack and Jill, which is probably my last straw for watching Adam Sandler movies. That's the movie where he plays himself as a woman, as his long lost twin, Al Pacino's in it, which I don't know how they agreed him to be in that movie. But this is kind of where I lost faith in Adam Sandler. And then in 2014, he signed a major movie deal with Netflix. It was a four movie deal for $250 million. And he put out like four movies on Netflix, which I ended up thinking were all right. His movie in 2015, The Ridiculous Six, a badly reviewed movie, but I thought it was at least somewhat enjoyable if you're just watching something at home on Netflix. He also put out The Do-Over, Sandy Wexler, and Murder Mystery on Netflix as part of that deal, which Netflix said that a bunch of people streamed those movies. They were like the highest streamed movies on their service at the time. So at this point, I think Adam Sandler was just in the mindset of putting out movies that he finds that are fun to make and also his audience enjoys. He doesn't care about the critics at this time. He just sees it as, hey, this is a business. I'm going to put out movies. I'm going to get my paycheck and I'll continue my career whether the critics like it or not. And then in 2017, he starred in a movie with Ben Stiller and Dustin Hoffman called The Merowitz Stories, where he's back into taking on a dramatic role and gets a lot of positive reviews. And then you get the 2019 and Uncut Gems where he kind of blows everybody away, myself included. How many carrots is this? Good what? Four, five thousand carrots? Three thousand dollars a carrot? Why's it got so many colors in it, man? What is this? That's the thing. They say you can see the whole universe in Opal. That's how f***ing old they are. And right off the bat with this one, it was just kind of cool to see Adam Sandler in a way that I forgot it was Adam Sandler. Like he looks a lot different. He has like these fake teeth in the movie. His hair's kind of gelled up in a weird way. 
And it's about a guy who has an unhealthy addiction to gambling. So what he's doing is he runs like a high-end jewelry company. But in addition to that, he's making these really crazy, extravagant bets with other people's money. So he's essentially just taking jewelry, moving it around, getting money from one person to bet on these crazy like NBA parlays that just end up getting him into more and more trouble. So the whole movie is just really chaotic. And it's from these two guys named the Safdie brothers who actually came to Adam Sandler with the idea of this movie 10 years ago. And they're pretty young guys. But at the time, he was doing other stuff and he never got to meet them. And then eventually this script came back to him again he read it and was like this is actually really good and he agreed to do it so what I really like about this movie is that it's just filled with tension all the way through like I was literally on the edge of my seat in this movie and I'm not using that as a hyperbole I was on the edge of my seat slouched down because there's moments in this where it's so intense I also love that they use like real people in this movie meaning that they brought in like non-actors to be actual tough guys in this movie I think it gives it a sense of realism when working with other real actors it also stars Kevin Garnett who's an NBA player not an actor he's playing himself so you think oh it's kind of easy just to play yourself but I think it's almost a harder thing to have to do for somebody who's never been in a movie before So essentially what happens in the movie is he is able to acquire a really rare and valuable black opal. And it's all because he's watching like the History Channel, learns about it, and then finds a way to get his hands on one. He gets it delivered to his shop and then shows it to Kevin Garnett, who becomes enamored with the thing and also wants to buy it from him. And then the movie just kind of escalates from there. So he has this valuable opal and he's trying to use it to pay back all his gambling debts. He owes like $100,000 to this guy who's just hounding him throughout the whole movie. Not going to ruin the movie, but man, it really gets intense. And I think Adam Sandler just has a really great way of getting into this role of this guy who essentially just watches the History Channel, learns about this thing, and thinks he has like the upper hand on other jewelers for some reason. The movie also takes place in 2012, so they made it a point to kind of make it look like that time period, which is an interesting thing because I don't really know what you know the 2010s for, but in this, you kind of see how they stuck to using like the iPhone that was out at the time. And also, um, The Weeknd is in it, the singer, and they made him like recreate his hairstyle to fit how it was when he first kind of came out. So I thought that was a really nice touch. I left the movie theater exhilarated. Like I said, I was literally on the edge of my seat and it moved me kind of in a way that a movie hasn't done in a while. And I think it was all because of Adam Sandler's really great dramatic performance. So I myself am really happy to see him have such a big hit with this movie and kind of people taking him serious again. And it's crazy just to see how he's gone from being the dopey guy on SNL who really suffered with stage fright at the time. Like the reason he would use his guitar in like a bunch of comedy bits and would write those songs is because because he suffered with stage fright and needed to hold something to kind of feel like he could fall back on it. Going from that, being fired on SNL, and then going on to star in these big blockbuster comedy movies, kind of taking a step back and being hit and tortured by critics with these all these bad reviews, and now kind of having this redefined career as he goes into the 20s. Is that what we're calling this decade, the 20s? But I would just like to see him really go for it this next decade, and how crazy would it be for him to go on to win something like an Oscar? Let's start that campaign now. Anyway, that is the evolution of Adam Sandler as told by me. And also, I would give Uncut Gems easily five out of five opals. It's still in theaters now, so you can go check that out. Um, It is a pretty R-rated movie. It has like the seventh most F-words ever in a movie. So um, if violence and bad language keep you away from going to see a movie, just a warning on that. Also, let me know which Adam Sandler you prefer, the guy who stars in the comedy movies or the one who takes on these dramatic roles.
All right, that's it for Adam Sandler. Coming up, I'm going to do my top five most anticipated movies of 2020 and also my review of The Irishman on Netflix. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. We're in a brand new year. Welcome to 2020, everybody. So for my movie list this week, I am looking at my top five most anticipated movies of 2020. I threw in some reboots. I threw in some sequels and just some movies I've been waiting a long time to see come to fruition. So let's get started. First, we are going to Top Gun Maverick, which comes out on June 26th. Yes, we are getting a Top Gun sequel after 31 years. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. Of course, you have Tom Cruise back as Maverick, and then you have Miles Teller, who you know from Whiplash, will play Goose's son in the movie, and Val Kimmer is officially back as Iceman. So for what the movie is about, they haven't released a whole lot of details about the plot. The story is rumored to explore the relationship between human pilots and unmanned drones in the modern military. So what I piece together, it looks like Tom Cruise's character Maverick comes back trying to show the value of having real life human pilots. So personally, I am not a Tom Cruise fan. For some reason, his movies just don't do it for me. I don't really see him as an action star. However, I am a fan of him in Top Gun. And I think they wouldn't bring it back after so long if they didn't have a really good movie on their hands. And why I put this on my list and why I'm excited about this movie is because it seems like they really went a long way to make this movie look accurate. It's basically like a love letter to aviation. So there's not a lot of CGI in this movie. The aerial footage in this is real aerial footage that they went out and shot with fighter jet pilots. 
And if you look at this footage, it looks amazing. So essentially what they did, it was they put the actors inside of real fighter jets and they put six different cameras around them. So you have the front facing camera, which that shot looks intense because what you're actually seeing is the actor in the fighter jet and that G-force hitting them. So you see their real reaction to them. However, they're not all flying the fighter jets. They are in the cockpit with somebody else. The only person who actually flew a plane during parts of this movie was Tom Cruise. Like he does have his license and he wanted to make it so realistic that he was trained on how to fly one of these things. Not the really crazy ones, but he did fly some footage in this movie. But apparently the actor said it was really intense on scene and when they're up there, you know, they're really feeling those pounds of force on their body. There's like behind the scenes footage of them essentially wanting to vomit while in the air filming this movie. So Paramount was actually able to make this with cooperation from the military because after the first Top Gun came out, there was a huge boost in recruitment in the 1980s for the Air Force. So they wanted to make the sequel as accurate as possible. So they went back to the U.S. military to ask for permission to film inside these fighter jets. The Pentagon even gave them access to a military base during filming to allow the cast members to work with real military personnel. So what you're seeing in the movie is footage of them really flying in military bases. Those are real action sequences. So what I think it's really going to do for this movie is give us a real kind of feel of what it's like to be inside one of those planes from a perspective I've never seen done in a movie before. I mean, to get that point of view from the cockpit on the big screen is the thing I'm just interested to see. So that's why I put it at number five. At number four, I had to go with Sonic the Hedgehog, which has an interesting road to even get out in theaters. So it's directed by Jeff Fowler, making his directorial debut, stars James Marsden, Ben Schwartz, and Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik, and comes out on February 14th. I'm going to give you five seconds to tell me where it is. Wait, don't hurt him. So the movie is based on the Sega video game Sonic the Hedgehog, which I played all the time as a kid. Now I grew up kind of broke, so my family never had a Sega, but my cousin down the street did, and I would go all the time to play Sega. I also loved the Saturday morning cartoon where Sonic the Hedgehog was voiced by no other than Jaleel White, aka Urkel. And for some reason, he loved chili dogs in that, which I never really understood. And after last year's success of Detective Pikachu, I think movie studios now are looking at video game franchises as a way to kind of get people in the theaters with a familiar premise already. You already know the character from the video game and turning it into a movie. So again, not really a novel approach, just a way to get people more comfortable and familiar with the character. The interesting thing about this movie, though, it was supposed to come out last year. But what happened was is they dropped a trailer where they showed Sonic and he looked way too realistic that it creeped people out. Like his eyes were kind of small and beady and human looking and he had human teeth and a bunch of people online were just like, this looks terrible, which last year Cats had a problem with people not liking their CGI where they went back in, refixed it and re-put the movie out. So... Sonic the Hedgehog kind of got ahead of it here and said, okay, people aren't liking this version of Sonic. They went back and retooled him. They made his eyes look more cartoony, like the character that we know. And they also changed the teeth, which makes him look a lot more friendlier and like a cartoon character rather than just some alien. So yeah, I'm excited for this, mainly for the nostalgia factor, but also just to see how Jim Carrey pulls off a Dr. Robotnik. That's why I put it at number four. At number three is a movie a lot of people were asking for for a really long time, and now it's finally here. I'm talking about Black Widow starring Scarlett Johansson, directed by Kate Shortland, female director, which will be opening on May 1st. I've lived a lot of lives, but I'm done running from my past. 
So Scarlett Johansson, who's Black Widow, aka Natasha Romanoff, is finally getting her own movie. And this is Marvel's and this is the way Marvel is kicking off its Phase 4. So what Phase 4 is, everything that has come after the last Avengers movie and their leap into like this whole new part of the universe. So what this movie is, is actually a prequel to Scarlett Johansson's character. And while the trailer has been out for a while now, there's not a whole lot of story on what the plot is going to be about, aside from the time frame it takes place in. So chronologically, this movie takes place after Captain America Civil War and then right before Avengers Infinity War. To catch you up just a bit what was happening with Black Widow during that time. Civil War ended with Black Widow on the run after helping Captain America escape, you know, Iron Man when he's kind of trying to prosecute him. So after that, her character was in hiding until Thanos came around in Infinity War, which forced her to come out of hiding and help the Avengers. They do give us a look at the bad guy in the movie named Taskmaster. You also have David Harbour, who plays the sheriff in Stranger Things as the Red Guardian, and also a very rumored cameo by Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr. Since it is a prequel and takes place before Avengers Infinity War, it is a possibility. Another cool thing about this movie is Scarlett Johansson has reportedly made $15 million for this role, which is the same amount of money that Chris Evans made playing Captain America and Chris Hemsworth made playing Thor in their own movies. So we're getting equal pay here. And just for comparison here, like in Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman made $2 million to star in that first solo movie. And Brie Larson made $5 million to star in Captain Marvel, which also required her to sign a seven-movie deal with Marvel. So I think Marvel right now is in a bit of a transition period with the Avengers pretty much being over. They're kind of looking for their next big thing and where to take the franchise, which I think this will be a big building gear for Marvel. They don't have as many titles coming out this year, and there's also a larger gap in between movies as there has been since probably like 2013. But I think this could be a really big movie, and I'm excited for Scarlett Johansson to finally be getting her solo movie. That's why I put it at number three. And it looks like I'm staying with the theme of female leads and comic book movies. Because at number two, I have Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Long title. It's directed by Kathy Yan. Yes, another female director directing a female starring comic book movie. Opening on February 7th and Margot Robbie back as Harley Quinn. Oh, you're that psycho chick. They never call a woman chick. I like said broad lady woman. What are you talking about? about for me, will you? So Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn made her big screen debut in the 2016 Suicide Squad, which was an overall poorly rated movie. But I do feel like she was the one shining light that DC had in this movie and the ability to take her out of that and place her into her own movie, which is kind of a Suicide Squad sequel in a way because it takes place right after that movie. But yet they're also making Suicide Squad 2, so I think they're just trying to bridge the gap with having a hit in between. So where this movie takes place, it's right after Suicide Squad. There's a brand new villain named Black Mask. And the main plot of the movie is that Harley Quinn and the rest of the Birds of Prey, which is like this gang of girls... They team up together to protect a young girl who came across a diamond that belongs to Black Mask. And it just so happens that that young girl is named Cassandra Kane, who turns out to be Batgirl. There's also rumored to be a Joker cameo, which was played by Jared Leto in the first Suicide Squad. Probably the worst portrayal ever of Joker. He, I thought he was just too cartoony, too weird, and didn't really add anything to the movie. I felt like they just put the Joker in there to get kind of people interested in the movie. The reason I'm excited about this movie, though, is because it's rated R. Suicide Squad was rated PG-13, and I think that really hurt the movie because it came out after Deadpool was such a big hit. Now, if you don't remember Deadpool, the first one starred Ryan Reynolds. 
and it really was the first R-rated Marvel movie. It was more violent, there was cursing, and it just fit. And after that came out, DC was kind of like, oh no, that was actually a big success. And we're kind of trying to tell a more grittier style movie, but we have a PG-13 rating. They went back and did some reshoots to kind of pump up the comedy a bit, but they still refrained from making that leap into an R-rated movie because with these comic book movies, you want them to be entertaining to adults, but you also want to consider that you want to get everybody in the theater, which means if it's an R-rated movie, you lose out on the kid audience. Now I did some research on the movie numbers. I couldn't find exactly how much Margot Robbie was played for the first one, but she wasn't the main character in that, so I don't think it would be comparable, but she did take home between nine and $10 million playing Harley Quinn in this one. So while I'm not the biggest DC Comics fan, I love a good R-rated comic book movie, and that's why I put this at number two. But before I get into my number one most anticipated movie of 2020, I want to give some honorable mentions. These didn't quite make the list either because there's no trailer out, not many details on the plot, or I'm just on the fence of whether or not they're going to be good. But I think they do deserve a shout out. Coming out on August 21st, this Bill and Ted Face the Music which I think will just be a fun movie. You also have coming out on March 27 is the live action Mulan, which I've gone back and forth on how I feel about that trailer. I think this one may be the one that kind of ends the trend of the successful live action Disney remakes, just because this one doesn't have really the charm of the cartoon at all. It almost just looks like a straight up Disney war movie, which I don't know how audiences are going to receive that. Like the good thing about the cartoon Milan is there was some comic relief with Eddie Murphy as the dragon, but this one, there's no dragon. You also have coming out on March 20th, A Quiet Place Part 2. And then on November 6th, you have Marvel's Eternals, which is kind of their new Avengers, but there's no trailer out, really not a whole lot of details aside from the cast who's in it. So it just barely missed my list. And at number one, my most anticipated movie of 2020, I'm staying in the theme of female comic book characters, also directed by females. It's Wonder Woman 1984, starring Gal Gadot, directed by Patty Jenkins, who did the first one, opening on June 5th. It's all art. That's just a trash can. It's just a trash can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of like Harley Quinn and Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman also made her debut in what is just a pretty badly reviewed movie, Batman vs. Superman, which I've never walked out during a movie, but what I do is I fall asleep during movies when they're boring, and that is a movie I took a good 20-30 minute nap in, woke up, and still not much had happened. The one shining light in that movie was Wonder Woman. And from that, she got her own movie, which actually has one of the highest ratings for any superhero movie ever made. So in this one, she's fighting not one, but two villains. One is her former friend turned villain played by Kristen Wiig. And the other is this business guy villain played by Pedro Pascal, who you know from The Mandalorian. He was also in Narcos and Game of Thrones. So yeah, it's called Wonder Woman 1984 because it takes place well in 1984. And you also have Chris Pine coming back as the love interest. So initially what DC was going to do was the same thing Marvel was doing where everybody would have their own movie and it would lead up to like everybody joining together in like the Avengers. So they had Justice League, which turned out to be a major flop. And Wonder Woman again was the only good part in that. And with Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill backing out as Batman and Superman, you're left with really just Wonder Woman and Aquaman for them to rely on. Not only that, but now Gal Gadot is getting paid, which there was a lot of controversy with what she got paid for the first one, where she only made $300,000. 
compared to Henry Cavill, who got paid like $20 million to play Superman. She was making a fraction of that. So here she is getting $10 million to come back as Wonder Woman, which is a pretty significant bump in pay. But I think that the fact that she's really carrying DC right now, they need to give her more money, like double that for Wonder Woman. So I'm just excited to see the continuation of Wonder Woman's story with Gal Gadot. And that is why I put it as my number one most anticipated movie of 2020. That is my top five list of the week. Let me know what you thought about my picks. And if there's a movie you're looking forward to, one that maybe I missed, let me know. All right, gonna get into it now. My review of The Irishman, which you can watch on Netflix. That is if you have an extra three hours and 29 minutes to spare. Well, the movie's actually three hours and 20 minutes. There's an entire nine minutes of just credits because this movie's so long. So I set aside some time to really take in this movie from Martin Scorsese, who is a legendary director, which you would know from Casino, The Wolf of Wall Street, and my favorite, Goodfellas. This movie is actually based on a real story. It's based on a memoir called I Heard You Paint Houses, and it's about a mob hitman played by Robert De Niro and his possible involvement with the killing of a guy named Jimmy Hoffa. I got a lot to say about this one, so before we get into it, here's a clip of The Irishman. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. You know how strong I made you? So I did a lot of research on this movie, not only on how accurate it is to portraying the real events, but also how long this movie took to be made, because it was actually in development since 2007, and it kind of had a whole different plot in the beginning. Like, Tara Reid was supposed to be the love interest in this. Glad they didn't go with her. Joe Pesci, who's in the movie, who you would know from also in Goodfellas. He was also the bad guy in Home Alone. But he said no to Martin Scorsese 50 times before finally agreeing to be in this. And he hasn't been in a movie in over 10 years. And not only is it Martin Scorsese's longest film to date at 209 minutes, it's also one of his most expensive movies ever with a budget of $159 million, which is pretty expensive. And it finally got the green light from Netflix, which I think it's so long because it's essentially a director's cut. Because Netflix, I don't think they're going to tell Martin Scorsese, hey, you need to trim it down a bit. They're pretty excited to get a Martin Scorsese film directly on Netflix so at 3 hours and 29 minutes that is the director's cut Martin Scorsese saying if you want my movie you get it in its entirety as a director I'm a fan of the guy but personally I think he's just maybe a little old and cranky because he's the guy who said Marvel movies aren't real movies that they're not films and I get it if you're making really epic crime dramas like Martin Scorsese and then you see movies like the Avengers making tons of money you may feel like your craft is taking back a bit because people are seeing these as like really big blockbusters but for him it's like no it's an old school storytelling very cinematic you know all these other just classic movie telling elements and when he sees those big things he wants to take a stab at them and I think it just makes him look old and kind of dated and I also think it's just kind of interesting that he had agreed to put it solely on Netflix I think if you're arguing that movies like Marvel I think if you're making the argument that Avengers movies aren't films and you're putting something directly on a streaming service well you could argue well then you could kind of say if a movie doesn't go in theaters at a full release is it really a movie Martin Scorsese because he was even getting mad at people and telling them not to watch his movie on your phone because Netflix it's available on your phone people are going to watch this wherever and he's like no you got to sit down and no Martin Scorsese if your movie is on Netflix people are going to watch it on their laptop on their phone that is the beauty of Netflix. So really my only problem with this is he can't pick and choose how he feels about changes in cinema. 
Okay, so that's my quick moment of Scorsese rant before I get into this review. I actually enjoy the movie. So the backstory on this, it's based on a guy named Frank Sheeran, aka the Irishman, who is an American labor union official accused of having links to the Buffalino crime family. And the whole movie is based on a book called I Heard You Paint Houses and told from the perspective of Robert De Niro's character, who is involved in all these crimes in the movie. So the book was written by a guy named Charles Brandt who wrote the memoir about Frank Sheeran, who claimed that he killed between 25 and 30 people, although he couldn't remember an exact number. So he basically confessed all this stuff, and this guy put it in a memoir, and the guy, Frank Sheeran, actually died the year after this memoir came out, and it was never actually revealed how accurate everything he confessed to was, because he was never actually convicted of any murder. Because it covers a lot of history in the movie, everything from, like, the mafia and Washington ties... Also touches on Castro's rise in Cuba and the CIA's attempts to overthrow him. It also talks about the mob connection between JFK's assassination. And then it kind of wraps up in the mob wars of the 1960s and 70s. It's basically like the mobster version of Forrest Gump told in the style of Goodfellas. The cast is also amazing and they're all in their 70s. You have Robert De Niro at 76, Joe Pesci also at 76, and Al Pacino at 79. The problem I did have with them being so much older is they do the flashback scenes, but in the flashback scenes, they de-age them. So essentially, they're playing the same age as they did in Goodfellas, but now they have digitally re-aged them to make them look younger. And it's been used in movies before. I remember whenever Robert Downey Jr. showed a younger version of himself as Iron Man, they were able to do that in a way where it was, okay, a believable, but it was also for a shorter amount of time. That was like maybe a two-minute scene, where in this movie, the almost the entire thing is Robert De Niro as a younger version of himself. So it's just a bit distracting, like seeing his face like with the wrinkles smoothed out. I think the real story kind of comes out in the last hour of it. I think underneath the surface of the movie, what you get is a story about a guy aging, getting older, dealing with loss, sin, and regret. So while it was a daunting three hours and 29 minutes, I think the movie was entertaining. Now, I'm not going to say that it didn't feel like three hours and 29 minutes. No matter how entertaining it was, it did feel that long. So I think that takes a little bit away from it. I think it could have been chopped down. There were some parts of the story that just really didn't need to be explored. I felt it was just kind of boasting that really long runtime. But it is an entertaining movie. You kind of have to take it in as like you're binge watching an entire TV show at once. So maybe breaking it up into like hour increments would kind of make it a little easier to chew and maybe more enjoyable. I watched it all at once just because I wanted to take it all in. But I did find myself at points of like an hour and a half in thinking, okay, this movie has to be wrapping up by now. And no, there were still a solid two hours left. So I would rate it 3.5 out of 5 Hitmen. Which if it were an hour less in runtime, I would easily bump it up to four, but I think it's just too long. So if you are a fan of Wolf of Wall Street, if you are a fan of Goodfellas, I do think you will enjoy this movie. My suggestion is just to kind of break it down into more watchable chunks. The beauty of it is it is on Netflix, so you can kind of pick it back up and start as you want. And if you really want to stick it to Martin Scorsese, watch the entire thing on your iPad. 
All right, and that's the show for this week. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. It really means a lot when you guys are tagging me in your Instagram story. So I'm going to give a shout out of the week to at Lauren Elizabeth 316, who tagged me that she was listening to the show last week. All you have to do to get a shout out is tag me in your Instagram story, just a screenshot that you're listening. I'll repost those throughout the week and then give you a shout out on next week's episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would really mean a lot to me if you rate and review the podcast because as a brand new podcast, it gives me a little boost for other people to discover it and hop in on the action too. So if you don't mind doing that, and if you're listening on iHeartRadio, just hit follow so you get brand new episodes every single Monday. I also have an email that I'll start taking questions on next week. It's moviemikeD at gmail.com. Any movie questions you have or topics you think I should cover, I'm going to pull some from that to talk about next week. So send them in now. I'll talk to you again next Monday. Thanks so much for listening. Later. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you ready for heart-stopping, toe-tingling, coma-inducing levels of drama and romance? Okay, great. Well. You can find it all included with Prime Video. Check out Expat starring Nicole Kidman, The Idea of You starring Anne Hathaway, and the history-bending romanticy My Lady Jane, which will leave you speechless forever. Or till the end of the episode. Find your happy place. Prime Video. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.